evolutionary algorithms can generate surprising, effective solutions to our problems. Evolutionary algorithms are often let loose within a simulated environment. The algorithm is given a function to optimize for, and the engineers expect that algorithm to evolve a solution that optimizes for the objective function given the constraints of the simulated environment. But sometimes, these results from the evolutionary algorithm are not exactly what we're looking for. For example, imagine an evolutionary algorithm that tries to evolve a creature that can do a front flip within a simulated physics engine that mirrors the real world. You could imagine all sorts of evolutionary traits. Maybe the creature will evolve to have legs that are like springs, and let the creature jump high enough to do a flip. Maybe the creature will develop normal legs, but have very strong muscles to propel the creature high enough to do a flip. What you wouldn't expect is that the creature could just evolve to be extremely tall, because a tall creature can merely lean over fast enough so that the body of its top portion flips upside down. And there was one experiment where the computer scientists who built this simulation and had the creature evolve within it, that's exactly what they witnessed. This creature just grew very tall and flipped over after falling down. In another similar experiment, there was an evolving creature that discovered a bug in the physics engine of the simulated environment. So this creature was able to exploit the problem with the physics engine to be able to move in ways that could not be possible in our real-world physical universe. That's not exactly what you're looking for when you're trying to make a simulated evolutionary environment that is assuming a normal physical environment. Evolutionary algorithms sometimes evolve solutions in ways that we do not expect. Researchers usually throw these results away because they don't contribute to the result that the researchers are looking for. The consequence is that lots of interesting anecdotes get lost, and perhaps we miss out on lessons that are important to understand as artificial intelligence gets more widely used. Joel Lehman, Dusan Misevich, and Jeff Kloon are the lead authors of the paper The Surprising Creativity of Digital Evolution. The paper was a collection of anecdotes about strange results within the world of digital evolution. Joel and Dusan and Jeff join the show to describe what digital evolution is and some of the strange results they surveyed in their paper. Joel and Jeff are engineers at Uber's Artificial Intelligence Division, so this topic has applicable importance to them. Machine learning is all about evolution within simulated environments, and developing safe algorithms for AI requires an understanding of what can go wrong in a poorly defined evolutionary system. To find all of our episodes about machine learning, you can download the Software Engineering Daily app for iOS or Android. It has all 700 plus of our episodes, and you can download them, you can find related links, you can find discussions, you can get personalized recommendations about episodes of Software Engineering Daily, because there are a lot of episodes and it can be hard to find the best ones to listen to. If you want to find those apps, they're in the iOS and Android app stores. You can also always send me an email if you have any feedback or suggestions about the show. Jeff at SoftwareEngineeringDaily.com Dule and Jeff and Joel, you guys are the lead authors of the paper, The Surprising Creativity of Digital Evolution. Welcome to Software Engineering Daily. Thank you. Thanks for having us. 
Yeah, I'm very glad to have you. I really enjoyed reading the paper. When we talk about evolution, most of the time we're talking about biology. We all know about natural selection and how that process leads to increasing fitness. As engineers, what can we learn from the process of biological evolution? I think that the natural world is full of engineering marvels. People very often forget about how wondrous the inventions of nature are that surround us. If I walked into a venture capitalist room today and I said, I have a new technology, I'm holding it in the palm of my hand, it looks like a a stone. But when I throw it into the earth and add water, it self-organizes and grabs all the molecules it needs from the soil and air and energy from the sun and turns itself into an oak tree. People would be astounded. If I said I could do the same thing with a slightly different initial seed and get a dolphin or a three-toed sloth, people would laugh at me. But that's exactly what nature can do. It has self-assembling nanotechnologies that can build things far more complicated and intricate than we can dream of. We're talking about squirrels that do tightrope you know, acts across telephone wires and the thinnest branches of trees, monkeys that leap through the canopies, things that crawl in the dirt and swim to the deepest caverns of the ocean that provide sometimes their own light. It's truly astonishing, and nature does that routinely every day. And so when we do, when we use evolutionary computation, is we try to harness the process that produced all of the wondrous marvels in the natural world. And the idea is that if we can set the stage or find the secret ingredients that create a process that produces a tremendously sophisticated design that's matched to an appropriate problem, then we consider that a victory. And that's why we try to harness evolution in some senses for engineering purposes, which is to use this, you know, harness the same process that produced jaguars, hawks, and humans to solve our technical problems. Another reason we study it is to try to ask and answer open questions in evolutionary biology, but that's more of a scientific motivation. Right. So this is the the term digital evolution refers to the idea of harnessing the evolutionary properties that you've witnessed in biology and applying those to solving problems in computer science or other information technology fields. Joel, how does the idea of digital evolution work in practice? Right. Well, in practice, digital evolution means that you're going to take some inspiration from the natural world, take some inspiration from from how evolution actually worked in nature and abstract from it something uh, in the form of an algorithm that you could then apply to to your problem of interest, or as Jeff said, maybe to an abstract thing that has some relation to biology uh, that you could use to study an open biological question. But the the overall sort of thing is to to take some abstract property of evolution. It could be the the survival of the fittest is one way to, to look at it, but there are many other lenses you could put on and to create an algorithm from that. You can think of evolution as being medium independent. So we know it from the biological world. We know it from evolution of hawks and squirrels and uh, and amazing things that we see around us in nature. But when you start defining it, you end up with definitions of a process that are not dependent on whether it's uh, it's DNA or whether it's zeros and ones. So I feel like when we say digital evolution, we just mean a process of evolution applied to a digital media or not even applied, but present in a digital context. So these collection of anecdotes, this is what the paper was about, is these different anecdotes that represent certain observations that 
there are these processes in digital evolution, these ideas like selection gone wild or automated bug discovery or just different ways that digital evolution results in found, you know, fascinating results. So, Jeff, can you talk about how this paper came to light, the idea that you wanted to collect these different anecdotes from different researchers into a single paper? Sure. So when I was a PhD student at the Michigan State University, one of my introductions to research in the lab were our lab meetings. And, you know, the the core of those meetings were deep scientific dives into research questions. But then often in the process of presenting that work, someone would say, and oh, by the way, as I was kind of setting these experiments up, here's this funny thing that happened. And uh, that happened regularly, and those stories were really engaging. And at some point in time, Elizabeth Ostrowski, who was a member of the lab, said, you know, we should try to write these down and capture these. And this was after what my advisor had told a particularly great anecdote about what, what how clever evolution had been in a particular situation. And that offhand comment from Elizabeth always struck, stuck with me that that would have been a great thing to do, because a lot of us in the field have been inspired by and motivated, and in some cases, in some cases decided to do research in this area. Area because of the surprising creativity of evolution. And often it's these sort of anecdotes that kind of really reveal that creativity. And they don't typically make it into scientific papers and journals because by definition, they're kind of the one-off random, you know, funny thing that happened in route to finally getting your experiment dialed in where uh, you've gotten rid of this mischief of evolution because usually it's subverting your intention as an experimenter. And then as I kind of expanded out to going to conferences, both within digital evolution and then actually beyond even to reinforcement learning and machine learning, I uh, came to realize that this phenomenon was not isolated to the lab at Michigan State, but it's actually more of a universal property, not only of evolution, but also of optimization in general. And that many researchers who deal with kind of intelligence in a bottle or intelligence in their computer in the form of an intelligent artificial intelligence algorithm that they're trying to experiment with frequently have this case, these situations arise where the intelligence surprises them and outwits them and kind of um, subverts the intentions that they had going into the experiment. And we love telling these stories over beers or at the water cooler, at conferences and at get-togethers, but they don't fit the standard model and so they don't tend to get into the papers and so they're just traded orally and there's no kind of original kind of fact-checking of the story. So sometimes you don't know if the fish has gotten a lot bigger over the telling of the stories. You can't remember the details exactly right. And uh, it occurred to us that maybe if we don't get serious and try to write these all down, then many of these stories will kind of pass on into antiquity as researchers leave the field. And so there was a related paper recently that had an interesting approach, which was as opposed to going out and kind of interviewing every single person who's done work in a certain area, and then one person or one small team of people kind of collating all of the results and writing them up and having a, an article that's written by three people, you could, in the modern world, you can kind of crowdsource this collaboration among scientists. So we decided to follow the model of that paper, and Joel and Dule and I put out a call for anecdotes where we said, if you had one of these amazingly hilarious events happen in your lab where evolution or any kind of optimization has surprised you, send us in a description, and then you can join on the paper, and we'll have the kind of the firsthand story from the the original source and we'll you know have it all compiled so that posterity has a written record of these really interesting anecdotes so you crowdsourced these different stories about digital evolution 
And the first class of evolutionary results that you explore is this selection gone wild. This is when evolutionary principles that you put in place in your simulated model lead to counterintuitive results. So you put some evolutionary pressures on a system and you know you let it run wild and then it does strange stuff. And there was a, f- a few examples that you talked about. One is, I believe it was a creature that had a bunch of different variables that it could evolve over each evolutionary period. And it was supposed to learn to do a somersault efficiently, which is where, you know, you flip kind of flip over. But then because the way that it was optimized, the variables were were input in a strange way, the creature instead learned to grow very tall and then just fall down to somersault instead of jumping. So intuitively, we would think, okay, in order to somersault, you need to jump off the ground to flip over. But actually, this creature just learned instead if you grow really tall legs, you could just fall over and flip, which is hilarious. There was another one where this program repair application, you had a, there was a program that was created that was supposed to sort a list of numbers basically was and it was a broken program so there was a broken program and the program was supposed to you know through evolutionary iterations was supposed to learn to sort a list of numbers and instead of learning to sort the actual list of numbers it just returned an empty list that was its evolutionary adaptation which is you know didn't break the rules it was very strange and kind of annoying but like it didn't break the rules Dasan, do you have any particular results that you, any lessons that you took away from the selection gone wild cases? I guess in, in general, thinking of uh, selection gone wild is that um, we think we know what we select for, or we think we, we understand what the evolutionary pressures are. And then you get something completely different than still satisfies your question or still uh, passes whatever test you put in front of in front of the evolutionary algorithm in front of your digital evolution so i guess the overall lesson to me has been that we need to be more careful about what we ask for and that we need to understand better how to define these questions and these evolutionary pressures if we want to get what, what we want. Otherwise, we're going to end up with, with funny stories, but not necessarily the results uh, or the outcomes we were looking for. Indeed. And I think one way that this applies to our modern software engineering practices is that choosing reward functions can guide how a system evolves. Jeff, have you seen any examples in practice where choosing a reward function suboptimally leads to you know suboptimal results i would say it's a, almost a daily occurrence in doing research in this field as Dooley was just saying evolution very frequently will do exactly what you ask it to do which is almost never what you want it to do that the lesson of this research is that we don't know how to specify what we want very clearly and this is actually um, an old problem. There's many myths dating back with, to antiquity and many sitcoms that are all based on the premise of asking for something and having somebody do that when that's not really what you want. So frequently um, the myth of you know, the genie is you get three wishes and all of your wishes go, turn out horribly 
poorly because you literally said something different than you actually want. And so what happens frequently with these evolutionary algorithms is that they optimize the letter of the law or the letter of the request and not the spirit of the request. So almost every example is kind of a, a fallout of that. So you already mentioned the case where evolution was challenged to return a sorted list. And we thought we knew how to specify how to, a measure of that, which is how many things in the list are not in order. And evolution just returns an empty list because nothing in that list is out of order. Another case is uh, a game of Connect Four, where these evolutionary algorithms were pitted against each other. And we thought we knew how to measure the score in the game, which is you beat your opponent or they run out of time to respond because it's a timed game. And what, what, the, what evolution learned how to do was create a memory, a bug in the opponent's code by setting a piece so far out on the edge of the board that the opponent has to allocate enough memory to think of this almost infinitely large board and that crashes the program, it never responds, and then evolution wins by default. Another one of my favorite examples is the one that launched this entire paper, which was an anecdote uh, out of Michigan State about 10 years ago. And that is my advisor was trying to study what happens when evolution cannot have beneficial mutations. So most mutations are harmful in an evolutionary process, but every once in a while, a mutation is helpful. And that's what fuels all evolutionary adaptation. But he wanted to study, okay, let's what happens if there are no positive mutations? And so he decided to create an experiment in which he basically checked if any offspring was better than its parent. And if it was, he would just delete the offspring and revert to the parent. And what happened was that evolution effectively, you know, flatlined for a while. It wasn't getting any better. But all of a sudden, you know, fitness started going up again. It started improving again. And he's like, that's impossible. I asked it, you know, to not allow any improvements. What's going on? And he dug in. And what he realized was that he was testing whether or not these programs were gaining skills because he was giving them a test. He was giving the offspring a test to see if they're any better than their parents. And what the offspring learned to do was to play dumb on the test. They're like, oh, if I pass this test, if I do well, you're going to kill me. So I'm just going to play stupid, fail the test. That's good. I get to be let out into the world. And then I could take advantage of the fact that I'm actually quite smart and I was just playing dumb on the test. I want to add something. When you list all these examples, it may sound like these are bad things uh, because we didn't get what we asked for. But A, they're very interesting because exactly because they surprised us exactly because we didn't get what we asked for but also it's evolution finding a simpler way to do something so it usually tells us that we overthought things and that we thought of a more complicated solution and evolution somehow found a simpler one and that's part of the the excitement and the amazement of it absolutely i mean there's certainly practical applications here and you know when you think about the idea of human evolution, it's based on mutation. And in most other contexts, the word mutation would have a negative connotation. But in evolution, we know that mutation is pretty much a bipartisan thing. Sometimes it results in advantages to the species. Sometimes it results in things that make you more prone to developing sickle cell anemia. It can really go either way. And I think we see the same thing in digital evolution. Yeah, in fact, it's funny you mentioned that because another case of evolution surprising us has been that evolution itself figured out that mutations aren't always a good thing. So frequently, we as researchers are trying to use evolution to come up with a solution. And that means trying out a lot of things, you know, in the 
the words of Silicon Valley to fail fast. And so you want evolution to try a whole lot of things, which means trying having a lot of mutations and then getting rid of the ones that don't work and grabbing the few that do work. But the thing is, is that frequently we tell evolution to do something like increase your average performance over time. Well, on average, mutations are harmful. So if you give evolution the ability to control its own search process, which is to control its own rate of mutation, most people thought that would be a very good idea because evolution would then find exactly the right mutation rate to get the ultimate engineering solution. But what we found, uh, Dulé and I in particular and some other researchers, is evolution almost always just turns off mutations. So basically, it refuses to look for anything better because you told it on average to try to improve its performance. And the best way to do that is turn off search completely and stay with your current performance, whatever it is. So it's one of these cases that in the short term, average performance is hurt by mutations, but it's essential in the long term for adaptation. So yet again, you naively ask for something like improve your average performance, and you realize that there's some subtleties you didn't think about in terms of a schism between short-term and long-term performance, and evolution ended up optimizing for one when what you ultimately cared about was another. In a way, we talk about debugging in a different sense, but you could, you could say that evolution is kind of debugging our thinking process, <laughs> that, there, that it's finding holes in our arguments and it's, it's correcting them. And speaking of bugs, there is one class of evolution that you talk about called automated bug discovery. And this is where you have a simulated environment and you try to search within that environment for bugs. But if you don't constrain the environment correctly, like if it has a bug in the simulation code, you have surprising results. For example, you could simulate the physical world and you have a creature evolve in the physical world. But if you designed the physics engine wrong, so the creature evolves in ways that defy real-world physics, well, that's not exactly what you were looking for. Dule, what can we learn from the anecdotes of automated bug discovery? That we are not so good at programming as we think we are. So speaking, of, speaking of frequency of things and how often we see it, Jeff said it's every day, and I think anybody who tried to, uh, to code a, a, a simulation of anything had this problem that something weird and strange happens and you go back and you look, oh, well, actually, I put a minus sign where a plus sign should have been. Or there is this edge case in my physics engine that I did not take care of. So I guess it, it teaches us how to be a little bit more careful in coding, but it also, it, it's, it's really like a, like a debug. It acts like a debugger. And over time, as researchers, we may get better at, at being careful, but there are always bugs and evolution will find them quicker than we can. Simulations are widely used in real-world applications. One that comes to mind would be if you wanted to simulate a human heart in order to devise a customized stint for the human heart. Why would that be a situation where the consequence of a poorly defined simulation would have dramatic consequences? So one of the things that we've seen over and over and over in this field is that evolution is a very clever and capable optimizer, and it will optimize to the exact conditions that you ask it to. So if you're completely evolving a solution in simulation, it will customize that solution to the laws of physics in that world. And 
if those laws of physics work differently than in the real world, then you might get a solution that works in simulation but doesn't transfer to the real world. And so there's an entire almost field of research into uh, getting solutions based on AI or evolutionary algorithms that work in simulation and then transfer to the real world. In fact, we had a paper that was on the cover of Nature that did exactly that. It harnessed an evolutionary algorithm offline ahead of time to evolve a lot of solutions, but then it required a different machine learning algorithm to customize those solutions to the real world because they don't just work out of the box because evolution is too good at what you asked it to do, and that is only performed well in simulation and not also in reality. So now we're getting into practical applications. Dulé, if I wanted to use the process of digital evolution in a pragmatic way within a machine learning pipeline, for example, how could I make use of that? Where would I put it into my machine learning process? So I, I think there are, there are many ways you could put in evolution. You can use evolution to... Uh, to search for better parameters for your machine learning, you could use it to to debug uh, your process and to see if you if you get what you what you aimed for. I, I think, as Jeff mentioned, one way to think about evolution is an optimization process, and it's not it's not the only thing. It's not how do we define it in biology, but it is one of its features. Uh, so basically, anytime you need to optimize something, maybe performance time or uh, precision or how uh, how well it works in in different situation maybe it's versatility setting it up in an evolutionary context where you try a bunch of things you select the best ones you mutate them a little bit and you try again will lead you to have better results so these anecdotes from your paper they hadn't been discussed or collected until you wrote this paper why is that why hadn't these been explored in finer detail before one one major reason for that is is the way we do science, which focuses on positive results. So we focus on things that work. Also, many of these anecdotes were sort of things that happened uh, during a long research process of looking into a particular question. Uh, it, there was a bug. There was something weird that happened. We fixed it. And at the point in time when we are writing the paper, this is not interesting in, in a classical academic sense. What's interesting is what was the hypothesis? Uh, what kind of methods did you use? Uh, were you able to disprove or to support that hypothesis? But the, the intricacies of uh, how things went wrong at uh, month five out of a two-year-long project are not what makes it into papers. And this was exactly the, also the motivating factor for us is because we knew that these things are out there, but that there was no room for them in a classical academic uh, way of telling stories about our research, about writing these papers. Uh, so we wanted to, to find a way to, to preserve them, to share them with our community, but also more broadly with people who are interested in, uh, in evolution in general or, or digital evolution more specifically. Dule, do you have a favorite example of when evolutionary algorithms produced a result that exceeded the expectations of anybody involved? There are many that I like, so I, I'll have to do a quick choice. But let's say there is an example from uh, from a work that uh, that we did in our lab here in Paris with uh, with a fantastic postdoc uh, Antoine Frenois, or PhD student at the time, now postdoc elsewhere. And we were studying uh, evolution of cooperation, uh, so why individuals might uh, cooperate with each other even when uh, whatever they're doing actually costs them uh, directly. 
And so this is one of the big evolutionary questions. There's a lot of work on it in all sorts of systems, including uh, digital ones. And we managed to evolve some digital individuals that, that cooperated. Uh, and as a way to analyze them, we actually increased the cost of that cooperation. So and we expected, okay, so they're going to stop cooperating because it's too costly. The, the overall benefit is not not big enough to to offset the, the direct cost. However, we saw that consistently some of our involved, evolved digital organisms uh, continued to cooperate, and we weren't sure why that was. And Antoine spent many months trying to sort of figure out what happened. It turned out that in their digital encoding and the way their genomes were set up, they put their genes for cooperation uh, literally on top of uh, genes for for metabolism, for things that are directly rewarded. So they managed to find a way to hide their cooperation genes and protect them from mutations because any mutation to those genes had a high chance of having a direct fitness cost due to these metabolic genes that overlap. So basically, without looking for it, Antoine and, and, and we managed to find another way of maintaining cooperation that seems to also exist in nature, although it's unclear what it, what is its, its significance, how often this happens. But there's certainly overlapping genes in nature, and some of them may be cooperation genes. So to me, this was a not a simple example, maybe not one of these uh, quick, sexy things, but uh, it, it uncovered a, a very interesting mechanism, and it, it certainly went beyond what we expected when we, when we set out to, to do this study. So in a way, it's also an example of an anecdote that did make it in, in the paper because we did write it like this, and we told the story of, look, we tried this and it didn't work out, and then we discovered something else. Jeff, do you have anything to add to that answer? Yeah, so another example that I love where evolution exceeded our expectations was it was in a case where we thought evolution couldn't solve a problem at all, and it did so quite cleverly. So in our nature paper, one of the things that we asked evolution to do offline in simulation ahead of time was find a variety of different ways to walk. And this was a six-legged robot, and we defined different ways to walk as the different percent of times that the feet of the robot would touch the ground. And so we wanted all possible combinations of using all six legs a lot, using these five legs a lot, and this sixth leg, not that much, et cetera, et cetera. And there was one corner case in that vast array of possibilities, and that is try to walk without ever having any of your feet touch the ground. And we thought it was impossible for the robot to walk without using its legs. And um, when the first author pulled up the data, he looked in that cell, which we thought was going to be empty. In fact, we almost considered not even including the cell, but it was just easier to leave it in the code. And sure enough, there was a pretty good solution in that cell. And he actually thought, oh, no, I have a bug. I'm going to have to rerun all these weeks of experiments. And he was really, like, sad. And so he pulled up the video of the robot walking in that cell. And it turns out that the robot was walking quite happily by flipping over its ba- on its back and walking on its elbows. With met the spirit of the uh, or the, the letter of the law, which was you know walk without touching your feet to the ground, but also you know, accomplish the task, which was you know move as fast as possible. So it's just quite amusing to see this video of this robot almost winking at you, flipping over on its back, and then happily crawling along on its elbows instead of on its feet. Indeed. It- Is there anything else that digital evolution can teach us about real-world biological processes? Sure. So both Dulé and I come from a lab that tends to use this technology not just for engineering advances, but also because we're trying to ask and answer open questions in evolutionary biology. So... 
for example, I mentioned this earlier, but a lot of people thought that evolution, if it was going to control its own mutation rate, would do a good job of picking a mutation rate that was beneficial for long-term adaptation. But Dule and I have a paper where we basically created this, this simulation of evolution. And we showed, in fact, no, evolution will turn off its mutation rate if given the possibility and turn off its own ability to adapt because it's short-sighted and evolution doesn't have foresight. It doesn't care about the long-term benefits of evolutionary search. It's just immediately trying to improve its average fitness. And there are many other examples where we ask questions. Dule alluded to some work that he has done, and I've also done some work on the evolution of altruism. So we allow these organisms to be nice to each other or not, and we see under what conditions does altruism evolve. We also see Dule's done a lot of work into under what conditions does do you see sexual reproduction uh, emerge as opposed to asexual reproduction. So basically almost any question you can think of in biology, biology, if it's an abstract question about the dynamics of evolution and it's not dependent on the specific molecules involved in an evolutionary process, you can create a simulation that probes that question and oftentimes do it with a lot more speed and ability to gather data and control experiments very precisely because it's all happening in a computational world. But as this paper points out, you might think you have perfect control, but because you're dealing with this creative adversary in evolution that sometimes has its own motives, you very frequently think you've got everything dialed in and it's going to go exactly according to how you think it, you know, your plan and evolution has its own idea for what it wants to do. The practical applications of the results of this paper are not just limited to the idea that we could use digital evolution to develop more effective models and explore a problem space more effectively, there's also implications for AI safety. And I think that's because it's hard to anticipate how you can have a system evolve if you give it a wide open space. What are the implications for AI safety? So I think that the lessons for AI safety are significant, and they are that we are not as clever as we think. Or there's a famous quote that says, evolution is cleverer than you are. Uh, we often think we know what we're going to get when we launch an optimization process. And oftentimes, we do not anticipate all the ways that it can go wrong. And this is not just confined to dealing with evolutionary algorithms or even machine learning more broadly. It's also true of any incentive structure. Wherever you create some sort of game or incentive system in which people are supposed to do something according to a set of rules, if you're dealing with intelligent agents that are optimizing for their own best interests, they will oftentimes find loopholes. So whether or not it's you know, tax law and people finding loopholes there or international trade regimes or environmental protections and people finding loopholes or teachers in a classroom thinking that they're going to create some cooperative dynamic because they allow peers to grade each other, finding out that their peers are shanking each other's grades to try to raise their total grade because it's great, things are graded on a curve. Over and over and over again, we launch these kind of natural experiments with intelligent agents and it's very difficult to predict ahead of time the results result of the dynamics of lots of intelligent agents that are trying to optimize exactly what you ask for, which again may not be what you want. And so there's kind of, I think the overall lesson from engaging with an intelligent optimization algorithm on a daily basis is humility and not to be too heuristic and think that you will get it right the first time. In fact, I think everyone who deals with 
uh, intelligent evolutionary algorithms, machine learning, and probably human optimizers, uh, has learned that they should plan for iteration and failure. The first couple of times, weird things are going to happen, and you're going to be impressed and surprised with how the system and the agents reveal to you that what you asked for is not exactly what you want, and you'll have to refine the process, and ultimately you will get there. But what you shouldn't do is, for example, launch a process, assuming you've gotten everything right, when the consequence for it going wrong are serious or catastrophic, and that's where AI safety comes into play. You definitely want to think as much as you can ahead of time about what might go wrong. Use the lessons learned. We've all developed a set of heuristics in a kind of an instinct for how evolution is going to misbehave and its typical tricks and how we can kind of head them off at the pass. But ultimately, what we have is a sense of uh, humility and modesty and assumption that we didn't, we're not going to get it right. And therefore, things will go wrong. And we want to make sure that it's properly sandboxed such that when things go wrong, there aren't consequences for humans. What I would add uh, exactly along the lines of what Jeff just said is, so we've been doing this in uh, in the digital media for uh, several decades, and some of the examples go back to the at least 80s and, and even earlier. And so over time, we developed uh, ways to uh, to prevent it, ways to, to make sure things don't go horribly wrong, to sandbox it. But if you then also look at uh, evolutionary biology, People have been aware of these things in the lab or in the field for a long time. We've tried to work with evolving systems for hundreds of years, and you know things go wrong. You introduce rabbits somewhere where you shouldn't, and then they eat everything. We are not new to the idea that evolution outsmarts us, and maybe the message is that this happens in, no matter what, what the situation is. So it works in nature, it works in the lab, it works in our computers and in the context of digital evolution. The same thing will happen with, uh, with AI. So we can maybe look for experiences from these other domains and apply them to, to AI work uh, to put those safeguards in that are necessary. Yeah, I love that answer, especially because many people think that because it's a computer program that it couldn't possibly surprise you. They say all the time, I don't understand, how is it surprising you when you wrote the program? And what we basically have to explain to them is that we set up the very, very basic rules by which an evolutionary process gets off the ground. But then it really is evolution taking it and running with it from there. And we are frequently and constantly surprised with what it comes up with. So the fact that you had wrote the kind of initial rules of the game doesn't mean you know how the game will unfold. And that's what we see day in and day out with evolution. And that is a message for people who are not used to thinking about evolutionary algorithms and machine learning algorithms being remarkably creative. Uh, and the proof there is that frequently evolution does come up with solutions that we never would have dreamed of. And in some cases, we don't understand. And if that's not proof that evolution can outsmart us and do things on its own that we didn't program in, I don't know what is. This episode is a good complement to the one that we published today, actually, with Dario from OpenAI. He was talking about AI safety, and the emphasis he proposes that AI safety in the context of accidents is a concrete problem to address. So we can talk about whether or not AI safety is going to be relevant in the domain of malicious activity. We can talk about that. But where it's definitely relevant is accidents. If you develop an, an AI system in the context of a wide open decision space, there will be accidents made. 
do we have any approaches to preventing accidents in the realm of these fast evolving systems? Could you define what you mean by accident? By accident, I mean a system that does something that is negatively harmful that we wouldn't have wanted. I would just point out that most researchers currently do not launch optimization algorithms out there in the wild that just kind of the typical way that it's done is that you launch a learning process or an optimization algorithm in some sort of controlled environment or sandbox, and then it might produce a solution. And then you have a whole second process by which you try to make, see whether or not that thing that was produced is safe uh, and has your, you know, is respecting the values that you have in terms of deploying it. But it is very much an AI safety issue if people start to deploy these optimization processes in the wild, and that is increasingly being done. And so that's kind of where these are lessons to people who are thinking of doing that, that you know there may be things that go unexpectedly wrong, and you should be humble about your ability to anticipate them. Yeah, I mean, even the domain of social media, we would have never thought that such an area could be so damaged by accident. I mean, I, I would argue that the you know the creators of the algorithms for for social media, what they created was or the, what happened in actuality with people being able to, I guess, hijack. I don't know if that's the right word, but take advantage of those algorithms. That was that was an accident. That was not on purpose. It, it but it made it out into the wild, nonetheless. Yeah, it's just, you know, working with intelligent agents that have their own agendas and their own goals is kind of a difficult thing to anticipate all the ways that things might go wrong. And whether or not those intelligent agents are AI algorithms optimizing according to some objective or humans optimizing according to whatever they are trying to accomplish, the highest level uh, takeaway, I think, is that who knows what's going to happen? Um, these are complex, dynamic systems with lots of interacting parts, and uh, intelligence adapts, and it finds a way. Jeff, I asked Dule this a little bit earlier, but I, I want to phrase it to you as well, since you're uh, working in a heavily applied space. So when you think about machine learning, there are places where you could insert notions of digital evolution how can you apply digital evolution to get better practical results? I would say that thousands of PhD dissertations and papers have been dedicated to that question. So it is a rich area of research how best to do that. And all many of, if not all of the authors on our paper, and there are something like 30 to 50 or something, have dedicated much of their careers to studying those questions. And there are high-level answers and there are low-level answers. There are thousands of different tricks that you can use to try to harness evolution to help it accomplish your goals and to catalyze its ability to innovate. It's very difficult, I think, to give an overall summary, except just that it's exceptionally complicated. And you know, on a daily basis, we take 
ideas from statistics, from neuroscience, from evolutionary theory, from game theory, and we try to blend them and match, you know, mix and match them and study them to try to get evolutionary processes to innovate and solve engineering challenges. And also, as I mentioned, to try to, um, you know, study some of the most fundamental aspects of science. For example, one of the most amazing open questions and challenges in science is, where did all the complexity that surrounds us come from? How do you launch an open-ended process that continues to innovate and eventually produces three-toed sloths, jaguars, hawks, and human beings, and continuously innovates? Imagine if you could do that in the space of novels or screenplays or mm-hmm. uh, paintings or software code. Imagine if you could create an, an, an endlessly innovative process that would do nothing but write new interesting types of code that solves new process, uh, new problems, or creates new art forms. And so we have a lot to learn from nature. We have learned a lot, but we have a lot more to go to try to unlock the secrets that made the complexity explosion that surrounds us and impresses me every single day a reality in silico. To close off, what are each of you working on? Why does digital evolution interest you? Well, I'll just, since I just gave that answer, I will dovetail on it. Um, A lot of the reasons, things I just mentioned are motivations to me. I'd like to understand where we came from in terms of what are the processes that gave rise to what Darwin called the entangled bank, which are all of the myriad of amazing creatures solving problems in very different ways. And how did that process kick off and sustain itself? And how did it ultimately lead to humans? And also, how does thinking happen? How does intelligence emerge? What is the generality of intelligence? You know, to some extent, barring interstellar travel, we don't have other intelligent alien species to interact with such that we could learn about the space of intelligence. You know, how different can you be but still be an intelligent? What does alien culture and art and political science and morality look like? Well, one way to study those questions would be to invent artificially intelligent life within the computer or or maybe sets of very, very different types of AI. And then, you know, we get to learn from and interact with those alien cultures by creating them in a bottle or in our computers. So to some extent, being an AI scientist is a dream job in that you get to study some of the deepest, most profound questions of our origins and ultimately the set of all possible intelligent agents that might exist. Yeah, I'll try to give a slightly different answer. When I look at biology, there's large parts of it that uh, that try to answer uh, the question of uh, how something works. So how a particular set of molecules interacts with another set of molecules, how genes are expressed. There is a lot of mechanics, a lot of biochemistry, a lot of biophysics. For me, studying evolution is asking and trying to answer the questions of why does it work like this? <laughs> and to understand why we have certain features is to understand how they evolved. And there are many ways you can you can try to answer those questions. I like the digital evolution way, in part because it tends to be quicker than anything else that, that we can do. And to, to my students, I often show a picture of Darwin and jokingly say, you know, I want to answer these evolutionary questions, but I don't want to look like this, this guy before I'm done, because it's usually a picture of him very old with, a, with little hair and, and a long gray beard. So there is this appeal of being able to do things quickly. 
of being able to do things in a very controllable way, in spite of what we just talked about of how things go wrong and how they surprise you, it's still a lot more controllable than anything that you can do in the lab or, or in the field. And finally, I, I, I completely agree with Jeff. There's this appeal of, of strangeness, of uh, something different, of a different instantiation of evolution or of different instantiation of life. The same way we're excited about uh, uh, science fiction is because it gives us different worlds. Our digital evolution gives us different worlds in which to study evolution and try to understand it better. Yeah, one of the things that we wanted to capture in this paper is that when you get to interact with an intelligent force that is within your computer, there's a certain joy and exhilaration in not knowing what's going to happen. So ever since my first days as a PhD student through today, we will dream up an experiment, dream up a world, dream up a challenge for AI or evolution, and we will hit a button that launches a process, and then we'll go to sleep. And there's moment in the morning where you wake up and you realize that there's enough present to open up and see what's inside. You're going to turn on a computer and you're going to see what did evolution come up with this time? How creative was it? How did it solve that problem? Did it work? Did it not work? And, you know, oftentimes you're completely blown away with what you find. And there's just this kind of smile and smirk and of admiration for a creative force that you don't have full control over. Okay, I know we're up against time. Jeff, I wanted to ask you one more question because you are so ebullient about your about your job, the you know, the dream job and and I agree with you. I I love studying this stuff and and talking to people such as the both of you and Joel is a dream job for me as well. There are naysayers today. There are people who talk about deep learning being overhyped, machine learning being overhyped. Do you have a perspective on that? Is Are we on the verge of another AI winter? So what I love about this job is that we are simultaneously trying to invent new machine learning algorithms that are going to take us into the next phase of AI, but also that the current AI is working tremendously well. So even putting aside whether or not it ultimately will take us to the next phase or to AGI, the current AI that we use on a daily basis is extremely helpful. It's extremely helpful for Uber throughout many different areas of its business. It's helpful for Google and Facebook and Twitter and actually any company that's using machine learning and deep learning is probably finding that it's tremendously effective. So uh, after decades of AI not working, for the first time really, it's working tremendously well across a number of different domains. And so I do think that deep learning is not overhyped. I think that it has tremendous benefits and it's really moved the needle. I also personally feel that it's going to probably be part of the solution that takes us all the way home. I think other technologies will get woven in with it, but it's definitely a piece of the solution. So to some extent, whether or not deep learning itself is overhyped is, gets a little bit into the semantics of what you mean exactly by deep learning. And I think in the end, it's going to be part of the solution and part of the things that some people think are missing are going to be woven in. But it's also a research problem. It's an open area. We don't fully know the answer. It may require a complete paradigm shift to get to more sophisticated uh, forms of intelligence. But my money is on something like deep learning that is enriched with other techniques and other ideas and more complicated environments in which to operate that ultimately leads to the next major sea change in AI research. Well, Dulé and Jeff, I want to thank you both for 
coming on the show. I know we lost Joel at some point, but I will follow up with him and see if we can uh, do something else. Thanks, guys. I really enjoyed the paper. It was very thought-provoking. Thank you. Thank you. Wow.